Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. In this program with Dr. Neufeld, we continue our series, He Made Me Human. So let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 to 19, with today's message called, How Purpose Came to a Chaotic World. Genesis 1 teaches why the world exists. And when you think about it, it's a bit stunning. Ever since the advent of the theory of evolutionary biology, we've been trained to believe that life is a series of random events, a series of accidents based upon something called natural selection. And since it's an accident, the world has no purpose at all. And if that's true, then it follows that you and I have no purpose to our existence. And if we have no purpose for our existence, then it doesn't matter what we do. And if it doesn't matter what we do, it shouldn't matter whether we help a little old lady across the street or whether we break into her home and beat her to death. After all, it's all the random acts of nature, natural selection, and the survival of the fittest. See, most of us can't live that way. See, the problem is that we've been handed a theory of life that if we actually live it out, it will destroy us. We need something else. The question I want to ask and answer in today's broadcast is this. Is the world a random place at all? Is there really such a thing as luck, coincidence, or chance? Or is the world the product of the rule of God? Genesis 1, 3-19 tells a very different story from the one we were taught in school. Let's read it. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. The waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now, of course, as you know, I've left two more days yet to be read and which we will deal with tomorrow. They deal with creatures in the water, in the sky, on the earth, and of course, ultimately with the formation of man as the crown of God's creation. But all of these are lovely words. You know, as we have seen, the earth was a wasteland devoid of meaning, but now God moves to change all of that. 
Light floods the earth. An atmosphere takes shape. Land masses appear, and the earth becomes covered with vegetation. The sun, moon, and stars become visible and mark seasons. And suddenly, birds and fish begin to fill the earth. God is on the move. Let's deal with the issue that is on everyone's mind when we start to read. Should we read this passage as referring to a literal 24-hour days? Now, I'm going to give you my best take on that, but let me say at the outset that the answer to this question should not be seen as a question of orthodoxy. This should be allowed to be a debate that we might have among brothers and sisters with an open hand. And what I mean is this. If one argues for a historic, factual reading of the text, if one holds to biblical inerrancy, if one holds to the creation of a literal Adam, I can't see how we should approach this question with anything but an open hand, an extended hand to the one who might not agree with us. For in fact, the length of time in each day does not impact a single Bible doctrine anywhere. Let's see if I can frame the debate properly. On the one hand, are those who argue that we should take each day described as a literal 24-hour period of time. See, there are several reasons for understanding the text this way, and they are strong reasons. First, the formula, there was evening and there was morning, at the end of each day, seems to indicate days as we understand them. Furthermore, when Moses reflects on what he himself has written, at the time of the giving of the Ten Commandments, he writes, and I'm quoting from Exodus 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. See, that would seem to indicate that the ancient Jewish week, with Sabbath being the day of rest, was premised on the work week that God had when he created. Since God made the earth in six days, we should pattern our working lives exactly in the way in which God did. Now, on the other hand, those who argue for what has been called a day-age theory will argue, for instance, that day six, spoken of not just in chapter one, but expanded on in chapter two of Genesis, cannot have happened during 24 hours because on that day, God created all the animals, then he created Adam, then Adam was given the task of naming all the animals, which would have included discovering the purpose and design for the creatures that God had made, which I might add is the beginning of the scientific enterprise. Then Adam becomes aware that there is no helper suitable for him in the animal world. Then God causes him to fall asleep, and he awakens to find that God has created a wife for him. And then he speaks of his understanding of his relationship with her and of the complementary roles which they are to fulfill. See, that seems like far more than one can reasonably think happened in a single 24-hour period of time. You know, furthermore, the day-age folks argue that the formula, there was evening and there was morning, does not speak of a 24-hour day at all, but rather the ending of a day, that is, this time period has now come to an end. Also, they point out that in Genesis 2 verse 4, where it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, meaning that the word day, as is used in Genesis 2 verse 4, does not speak of a 24-hour day at all, but of an era or an epoch. And so if the word day already once within this text refers to more than 24 hours, it cannot violate the text to think that this might be a signal on how we should understand the word day. You know, but there are problems with the day-age theory which they need to address. 
The first is rather simple. Romans 5.17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So, according to the Bible, death is the result of Adam's sin. But if you allow for long days or ages, that's clearly not the case. Long before Adam, animals and plants would have lived and died, and thus, how can this viewpoint consistently deal with the data of this text? You know, as it stands, that's a very good point. But again, we must be careful not to read too much into the text. See, from my reading of Genesis 2.17, where God tells Adam that the day he eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he will surely die, this needs only to be read to make it say that Adam, and therefore the human race, may alone have been exempt from death. Perhaps other deaths occurred, but not human death. I think we need to be clear. Adam and Eve would never have died had they not sinned, but death let's say at a microbial level, would have occurred. Perhaps God's warning to Adam, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, only had meaning because Adam knew what death was in the natural world and was warned that he would not be exempt from it if he were to so blatantly rebel against the rule of God. See, just like Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, this statement leaves us with so many unexplained mysteries, so also the Bible does not tell us the exact nature of how the earth functioned in that time period. We only know that Adam and Eve would not die. See, all that to say that it's not entirely clear whether the day should be thought of as 24 hours or a longer period of time. But we do know that God created in six days, however we understand God days of creation, so that we might follow him and set aside a day each week in which we should rest and worship and fellowship. Now then, let's get to the details. What actually happened on each day, and why did God bring order to a chaotic world? Is this simply the natural evolutionary transformation into higher and more sophisticated life forms, Or did God do what he did in order to fulfill a higher purpose? More when we come back. Whether we think about the days of creation as literal or simply periods of time, we may not be 100% clear on what the Bible actually teaches. However we think about this issue, it's important to not get so caught up in the debate that we miss the wider significance of what God is doing. This introduction has given us a glimpse of God's ultimate design for the earth and how countercultural this view has become today in our culture. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld will finish explaining what happened on days one through four so we can appreciate this amazing account of creation. At Back to the Bible Canada, we are so honored when we hear how this ministry is impacting lives and deepening your walk with Christ. One listener wrote, thank you for continuing to spread his word to the world. Your messages are always on point, impactful, and inspiring, true to his word. May you continue to reach out and give others hope and promise, the hope and promise that only comes from accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. If you've been encouraged, inspired, or moved in any way by a message from this ministry, we'd love to hear about it. To express your encouragement in the form of a gift, simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Or to leave your testimony, email info at backtothebible.ca 
or visit backtothebible.ca and click on Contact. We'd love to hear from you. On the first day of creation, and by that we mean on the first day, that God took an earth that was chaotic and purposeless. He spoke the words, let there be light. And there was light. And since we read ahead, we might be wondering how it was possible that there be light on day one, and that it was not until day four that God creates the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. But if my central thesis is correct, that the sun and moon were already created prior to day one, then it would seem that what happens on day one is that light penetrates to the earth for the first time ever. But notice the phrase, and God said. That phrase gets repeated ten times in this chapter, and the point is that unlike the creation myths of neighboring religions around them, the God who creates creates with ease. Psalm 33, 8 and 9 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Notice here the answer to the very simple question. How hard was it for God to create the world? Answer, it was not hard at all. There is no sweating deity in the Bible, no exhausted God. He speaks, and all that he says simply happens. Sometimes Bible teachers will make a distinction between what they call God's command and his decree. God may command some things that are not done. Like, for instance, he gives the Ten Commandments. So the first command, you shall have no other gods before me. But as we know, this command was not done in ancient Israel. But this is the difference from what happens here. For this is more than a command. This is God's decree. Whenever God decrees something, it occurs always, every time. That's why St. Augustine of old prayed, O Lord, decree in me what thou hast commanded of me. What a powerful prayer. I've prayed that same thing myself. Lord, you command faithfulness of me. Now I plead with you, decree faithfulness in me. I encourage you to pray the same way. But back to the text. It's entirely keeping with this insight that we might read here, and God decreed, or God made a royal pronouncement, or God declared this verdict on this earth. I pronounce or I decree on this earth that there will be light. And whether there was a debris field hiding light from the earth or some other factor, the Bible does not say, but suddenly, when God made the decree, light strikes the surface of the planet for the first time. It happened not by a random occurrence, but by the design and creative power of the Word of God. Then verse 4 adds, And God saw the light was good. Now why is that phrase added, a phrase that gets repeated on each day? Good? Good for what? And the answer must have everything to do with God's ultimate purpose for this planet. It is good in the sense that it perfectly fulfills what God intends this planet to be for. God's purposes have succeeded. I notice also that the phrase is never, and God saw that it was good enough. Good indicates that what God makes perfectly fulfills his purpose. What God did on earth is not the work of a builder who has to hurry and is on his way to another project. God saw that what he decreed perfectly expressed what he was attempting to accomplish. Let me try to put that another way. This world perfectly expresses the purpose for which God made it. 
He couldn't have made it better. This is good. But God is still not done day one. He separates the night from the darkness, and then he gives names to each. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. The earth now will have a period of light and a period of darkness. The significance of this must not be overlooked. What God did on the first day is to establish the orderly and regular sequence of time. Unlike us who think a new day begins when our clock hits 12 midnight, and so we think of days as being ordered by mechanical or digital instruments, the ancient Jewish people who learned from this account always thought of a day beginning at nightfall. Any given day ended when the light faded, that was the end of the day. You measured the rhythms of life by the rhythms of light God established in nature. In other words, you didn't establish a pattern of living apart from nature. As we have done through our technology, you allowed God's order in nature to direct your patterns of life. Again, as an aside, the more we have superimposed technology over nature, the more we have forgotten God. But when you're aware of nature, we are also aware of the Creator. Okay, let's go on to the second day. On day two, God creates an expanse in the midst of the water, a place he calls sky, with water under the sky and water over the sky. The sky is literally an expanse, a vertical space between two bodies of water. See, one immediately wonders what one is looking at here. There are those who have argued that what we see here is the formation of something called a vapor barrier, which they will argue is the reason why it does not rain until the flood and is also the reason why one has such long lifespans early on in Genesis. They argue that there is a huge mass of water above the earth. Now, it's all possible. I mean, I don't know. But I want to stay away from speculation and concentrate on what the text actually teaches. The ancient people understood that there was water above them and water below them. In essence, what happened on day two is that God created an atmosphere, an atmosphere in which life was sustainable. See, every once in a while, I'll read an article about the possibility of human beings going to Mars and living there. They talk about building a dome, planting plants in it, and recreating an atmosphere that can sustain life. So there are arguments about whether or not that's possible, but God did it. Indeed, he decreed that it should happen. Day three sees the creation of dry ground, and one might say God formed the continents and the islands. And on the dry ground, God speaks and vegetation, plants, trees begin to grow. Life is now flourishing. There's a phrase on day three which gets repeated. The phrase is, according to their kinds. God created species and barriers between the species. You know, from my vantage point, this is the great embarrassment of evolutionary theory, that no transitional forms have been discovered. And so we have the idea not of the evolving of species, but rather the creation of species. On day four, something unique happens. God made two great lights, the greater, which we know to be the sun, to rule the day, and the lesser, the moon, to rule the night. Now, if you've noticed my initial thesis that before any of these days, the sun, moon, stars, and planets already existed, then this verse will not trouble us. We needn't wonder how it's possible that there would be light on day one and the making of the sun and the moon on day four. It seems likely that something changed on the earth, and now, not just allowing light to penetrate the earth, but the atmospheric conditions now existed that allowed the sun and the moon to be clearly visible. 
But what is of great significance to this text is not how this came to be, but the purpose or the reason this came to be. According to verse 14, they are signs for the seasons, days, and years. For those of you who know the Old Testament well, you will immediately recognize the significance of this. The weekly celebration of Sabbath and the yearly celebrations of the various feast days. And as you know, these feast days are connected to seasons, and the seasons and the feast days together form the cause for worship. The cycle of nature gets connected with the mighty acts of God. So, in effect, God so arranges the world precisely as he does, not just so that man can have a home here, and not only that man will learn to rule and reign over the works of God's hands, but that man will have an earth that provides an ideal background for his worship and his adoration of his creator. And that's why we must not bog down on the age of the earth, but rather on the purpose of the earth. The earth, as we will continue to see as we study the first 11 chapters of Genesis, is the stage for the declaration of the greatness of God as he demonstrates this toward the crown of his creation. John, we continue with this great series, and you know what? You're helping me understand a lot of the things that I I thought I knew, but I didn't really know. How would you suggest we have these conversations with people that are so set in their thinking about about creation and their sort of their ideas of days and whatever it is? How do we have those conversations? Well, first of all, I want to show respect for those individuals who may differ in the way in which I see the Genesis account. Uh, Many of the people that might disagree with me are also individuals who believe in the integrity of the text. And so I want to, you know, nod towards them and say, you're my brother and sister in Christ. One of the things that I did when I started this series is to try to make a distinction between those things which are negotiable and those things which are non-negotiable. You'll remember one of the things that I had said is that a literal historic Adam is a non-negotiable because the entire story of our salvation rests on that. So I think that we need to understand which things are absolutely essential and then allow ourselves to open up our minds and view the text, perhaps, and read it in a way we might not have read it before, and at least listen to one another with a gracious spirit. I think that's necessary in reading Genesis. It's our hope that this study of Genesis so far has been insightful, and perhaps it will equip you to share the truth about creation with others. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. What makes a family? Family is a bond of body, heart, mind, and soul. And one way to nurture spiritual growth with our families is to share in a time of devotion. Homes are helped by a time and place to talk about the things of God. Family devotions may seem daunting, but help is on the way. This month, Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will release a new family devotional, Four Minutes for Frazzled Families. It's a 31-day devotional guide for parents or grandparents looking to provide spiritual leadership in their homes and for their families. Back to the Bible Canada believes these times of sharing together are critical for the spiritual growth of the family. So visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 to request 4 Minutes for Frazzled Families. 
and we'll send you and your family this helpful tool for free.